like just put it down just stop using and my dad said she can't she's an addict and I thought addict I, I know I'm using a lot of drugs but I'm not an addict I can stop if I want I just don't want to and at that point I realized I can't stop because I do want to I don't want to be living this life on this episode of a sobering podcast Kayla Marshallock shares her story with us we also chat about stigma the neuroscience of addiction, and the hard work that goes into recovery. Well, hi, Kayla. Thanks for coming on our podcast today. Um, we um, we know you're um, an outreach worker here in Thunder Bay, and um, you have a story about um, substance use and recovery. So whenever whenever you're ready, uh, share share your story. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. I'm uh, I'm really grateful for the opportunity to be able to share my story. My story has a lot of trauma, um, a lot of heartbreak, but also a lot of hope and a lot of blessings like you had shared. I do work in the field of addictions and I'm also an addict in recovery. So my story starts off when I was a kid. I had a pretty normal life. My parents are both contributing members of society. There wasn't any drug use um, or alcohol abuse in the home. That was something that wasn't known to me. But as a young kid, I felt very out of place. I didn't feel like I fit in at home or at school. I was always trying to make people like me or have that validation from an outside source. At a young age, I didn't know that that's what I was doing. I just knew that I felt unlovable and unworthy. And I had a really like foggy sense of self because I knew I was a good kid, but I didn't fit in anywhere. And as I got older, um, I started to find friends in the not so good crowds. Um, I made friends with the misfits and the rebels because I too was rebellious. I sought attention. I began self-harming at a young age and the people that found out about it, um, I wasn't given help. I was given punishment. So at that age, like 12, 13, I just wanted an out. I didn't know how to ask for help. I didn't know where to go for help. So I just went deeper and deeper into a really toxic lifestyle and alone. I didn't have siblings that were close to my age. I didn't have friends that felt the same way as me. Uh, My family was very taboo with things like that. It wasn't mental health and addictions um, weren't talked about, weren't discussed. It was just basically hush-hush, don't do that or you'll be in more trouble. And like I said, at a young age, I didn't know how to put words to my feelings. I just knew that my actions got me consequences and my heart was breaking on the inside. And by the time I was 14 or 15, um, I started using substances um, that were not so bad, I guess, alcohol, cannabis, I used to fit in. And I got moved around a lot. Um, I got moved from friends' houses to my parents' friends' houses. And I couldn't understand why my family didn't want me, why my family didn't like me, didn't know what to do to please them. And I basically just got like the fuck it attitude and did what I wanted to, to make myself feel good. And that was rebellion, 
hard drugs, alcohol, um, small crimes, hanging out with really not good people for me, people that were older, people that were into drugs and partying all the time. And I finally felt a part of. I felt seen. I felt wanted. I felt special. I confused that for love because I did feel loved by these people. But really, looking back, they were just using me and I was using them. I was using them for drugs, um, an outlet, somewhere to spend my time because I didn't have any stability in my life. And doing that, I really became more apart from the ones I truly loved, like my parents, my siblings, the rest of my family, my childhood friends. I completely went in a different direction. Um, and then in that lifestyle came a lot of things, like a lot of violence. Um, I'm a victim of sexual assault. I'm a victim of like gang beatings. I've been in trouble with the law before. And all of that... That's not who I thought I was. And I always had my morals and my values still in me. So using hard drugs and hanging out with criminals and doing things to hurt myself was not in a line with my values and my morals. And that created so much guilt and so much shame. And even at the age that I was, like late teens, I didn't know that that was guilt and shame. I just always knew that I felt awful. I felt bad. I kept running from something, but I didn't know what that was. I kept running to something, and I didn't know what that was. So when I was about 17, I wasn't in high school anymore. I had lived with a couple different friends. And then my addiction, even though I didn't know it was an addiction, really took off. Like I was doing cocaine and ecstasy and drinking alcohol um, and other like pills, anything I could get, anything that was there. And it was just given to me. And um, I didn't realize the danger of it because I was escaping the negative feelings. Like I said, I was a part of. I felt special. And slowly these people that I thought loved and cared about me, they would disappear. When they were done with me, they'd move on to someone else. When I had nothing to offer, they'd move on to something else. And I slowly was dying on the inside to the point when I was about 18, I didn't care if I lived or died. I didn't care what happened to me. I didn't care about anything. Um, and it wasn't until I got pregnant with my first child that I thought, okay, I need to change. I need to do something different. I'm about to be a mom. I'm going to have a baby. And I cleaned up. I was able to walk away from the drugs for a couple of years at least. And then in my 20s, it came and went. I'd have, there'd be drugs at some parties, came and went. and But I was always able to put them down um, until I was about 27. And that is when my addiction really took over. And it happened so fast. So kind of to put it in perspective, I was 27 was pretty happy. Like I was happy, energetic, had a pretty decent life. Um, I had two kids at this point, had a good job. On the outside, it looked great, but I still was that little girl grasping at something. But again, I didn't know what that was. It was a void in me that I tried to fill with people and numbing myself. So 
And I got introduced to uh, a new set of friends and they were very, very dangerous people, but I, I didn't care. I didn't care about getting in trouble with the law. I didn't care about my family being worried. I didn't care about my own health. I just felt a part of and liked how I felt. And the first year of my addiction, I was still functioning. I still had everything, my job, my car, my house, my kids. And then slowly, I started to only care about drugs. There was less food in the fridge. My kids were going to school late. Um, I would sleep all day because I was up all night. And again, I didn't know who to reach out to. I didn't know how to say I needed help without being judged, without being punished. So I was really scared and tried to hold it all in. And by this point, I had lost any decent friends I had. And again, the, afraid of the judgment, afraid of the consequences, I, I didn't ask for help. I tried to solve my problem by using more drugs. And my solution eventually came my major problem because within four or five months, I lost everything. I no longer had a home. I no longer had a job. I no longer had a car. And my children were not in my care. And at that point, I was broken, broken beyond repair. I was an adult. So it's not like I was a, a young kid making foolish decisions. I was a grown adult with children. And I was addicted to crack. And I couldn't tell anyone that. Thankfully, um, my parents found out on their own by coming to my house. Um, and my dad was actually the first person to use the word addict. I remember sitting in my living room. I was high. And my mom and my dad and my grandma were there. And I had admitted to them, even though they already knew. And uh, my mom was saying, just put it down. Just stop using. And my dad said, she can't. She's an addict. And I thought, addict? I, I know I'm using a lot of drugs, but I'm not an addict. I can stop if I want. I just don't want to. And at that point, I realized I can't stop because I do want to. I don't want to be living this life where all my money and all my energy goes to drugs. I didn't want to be doing that, but I couldn't stop. And at that point, yeah, like I had lost everything. So I moved in with a friend of mine who was also a drug dealer and started living that high life of selling drugs. And I felt cool. I felt important. I felt special. And I went with that. But really deep down, I was broken I was full of shame. I was full of fear. I didn't know if the cops were going to come to the house. I didn't know if we were going to get robbed. I didn't know if I was going to die. But again, at that point, I had no, no self-worth. I had no hope. And again, still not knowing where to turn. I wasn't familiar with any agencies that I could turn to. I was just so scared about being judged that I kept it in. And my addiction spiraled uh, really fast after that. Uh, no, no stability, no routine, no nothing. My life revolved around getting high. That was all I did, all I cared about. I couldn't shower without being high. I couldn't go for a walk to the store without being high. And I did not know how to stop. And at that point, I thought, this is my life. This is all I'm good for. This is all I'm good at.
And I continued with it. And even in that lifestyle, when people who probably would look at me would say like, why don't you just stop? Or why are you choosing this? And I wasn't choosing that with a clear mind because with a clear mind that I have now, I can make that decision if I use drugs or not. In addiction, I had no choice. Once those substances are in my body, I'm not in control. And I make that choice now to not use because I want to be in control of my decisions. But after that, my life, yeah, I was going from house to house, um, staying with different people until it wasn't safe for me um, or until I had nothing left to offer them and they got rid of me. So going forward in my life, I was just deteriorating mentally, physically, spiritually. And it wasn't until maybe like a year, a year into my addiction, a year and a half, because it went really fast after it picked up. Like it crept up on me slowly for the first few years when I was still functioning. And then boom, I was full-blown active addiction. And I started to want to stop. Um, so I tried like detox programs, but I wasn't ready. I just was not ready to give up that lifestyle. And that caused a lot of internal confusion. Like, why don't I want to stop? It's unhealthy. But I felt like that's where I belonged. That's where I fit in. That's where I was needed. That's where I was wanted. And really looking back, I was wanted with my family. They needed me. They wanted me, but they didn't understand me. And I felt like they just had so much hate on for me. But knowing now, they didn't. You know, they love me. But as an addict, it's so hard to see that. So I went deeper into my addiction, making peace with the fact that I was going to die, either in a back alley or in a basement somewhere. I would... When I would sleep, I would go to bed praying that I wouldn't wake up, just be taken out of this misery. And I did that for about another year. And I can't remember exactly how long, but it all kind of goes together. But I was in that addiction, so broken, so desperate for help, but having zero idea where to turn, not feeling like I was worth the help. And all the barriers that I would go through my head, like, oh, wait list, or I don't qualify, or it was all just excuses because I wasn't ready to stop until finally um, I had in my head, I had told myself that my children were better off without me. And in that same breath, something told me, no, you're their mother. Nobody can replace you. People can take care of them, but nobody can replace you. And I thought, okay, now what? And I remember I was outside with like flip-flops and socks, small sweater, and it was like minus 40. And I was crying, just standing outside, like praying someone would just pick me up and bring me to wherever it is I need to be to get better. But that's not how that works. And it wasn't until I finally came to terms that I was ready to stop. I was sick of being homeless. I was sick of not knowing what was going on in my family's lives. I was sick of the people around me. And I was terrified. I didn't know how to get help. I didn't know where to go. Um, so I told my family, I want to get clean. What do I do? And I lived with them for a little bit. And luckily, I got into a detox program. 
And from there, I kind of started my recovery journey. Um, Again, I was scared. I wasn't sure how to build a new life. I wasn't sure how to rebuild what I had broken, but I knew that I was willing to try. So when I got into recovery, I lived in a recovery home and I was introduced to other programs and recovery-based meetings and events. um, And those essentially saved my life. But I also got into recovery with the idea that if I stop using drugs, everything will be fine right away. And that's not the case. Like some people probably still don't trust me. And some people still probably don't even think that I'm in recovery because they don't know me, right? But being in recovery for me has an ongoing process. Um, it's a daily, a daily practice. It's not just one and done, that's for sure. And I've learned that over the years because my recovery has not been solid the entire time. Um, building that foundation for me is essential because when trauma and crisis and stress comes up, if I don't have that solid foundation, drugs will be my outlet if it gets too much, if I don't have those positive reinforcements and those positive coping skills that thankfully I have developed because my only skills before were using drugs and running. And I didn't care what that looked like to anyone else. I didn't care that it was hurting me or the people that I loved. So now that I've been in recovery for a while, um, it is very, it's very disheartening to see the stigma and the judgment that is still out there because not all drug addicts are the ones you see in back lanes or passed out on a park bench. Like addiction is everywhere and it comes in every form and it does not discriminate. Addiction does not care who you are, who you know, where you come from, what you have. It does not care. Anyone is susceptible to it. And I think for me, I was lucky because everyone knew I was a drug addict. It was very obvious to anyone that knew me. It was very obvious. But now, like, I'm, I'm still an addict. I just choose not to use drugs. I was homeless for a period of time. Um, I was in trouble with the law. I used hard substances all the time. But people who know me now, don't they don't always know that about me or see me like that. And I think that that stigma that's still out there, you know, it prevents a lot of people like myself from reaching out and asking for help when really everyone deserves the help if they want it. It doesn't matter where you come from or where you work. And um, so, yeah, being in recovery for me is life changing and life saving. And I think that we really need to like meet people where they're at because you don't need to be clean to have kindness. And I know that when I was in my active addiction, I would sit in misery, either like in the park or at the bus depot or in hotel lobbies, just praying that someone would notice me. Someone would ask me if I was okay. And I would sit there as a young woman, very unhealthy and mentally unwell. And hundreds of people would just walk by and not even look my way. And Not that I was expecting, like I wanted someone to get me and bring me somewhere to get me better right away, but even a simple smile would have helped. Or if someone asked, are you okay? 
Like that to me was so important. And I did get that a few times. There's some people that I will never forget. Um, there was a security guard at a hotel. I was sleeping in the lobby and I went there three nights in a row, like at 11 PM. And the first time he's like, are you waiting for someone? Are you waiting for someone? And I said, yeah, I'm waiting for someone. And then by the third day when I came back, he had got me a blanket and he said, you can sleep here. You just have to be gone by 7 a.m. And I never saw that that man again because out of respect for him, I didn't go back on the fourth day. But I will never forget that. I just thought he saw me and he cared enough. And that really like showed me that people do still care. And I think that's so important. Anything you can do just a smile to someone, you know, you don't know what people are going through. And even the people that we know in our lives, we only know a fraction. We only know what we see. And so many people suffer and struggle. Are you looking to step up your or your partner's style game? Look no further than Mankind Co., the go-to destination for contemporary lifestyle essentials. Their premium shaving products and beard care solutions will have you or your partner looking sharp and feeling confident. And here's the best part. As a special offer for our podcast listeners, use promo code SOBER15 at checkout and get 15% off your entire order. Don't wait. Use promo code SOBER15 for 15% off now at www.mankindco.com. Mankind Co., where contemporary style meets the modern life. What is it? What does stigma mean to you? Stigma to me is other people's perception of something they typically know little to nothing about. And it's a judgment. Stigma is a judgment and prevents people from reaching out for help in any situation. What message, what's one thing that you wish you could get across to people? For the people that are judgmental, um, I would ask them to look inside themselves and see why someone's behaviors upsets that person so much. Why an individual who is part of the stigma has such strong feelings, negative feelings, on someone else's actions and behaviors. And if it's not affecting you and it's not hurting you, I don't think you should have that judgment. I also would ask people to be compassionate and a little more understanding or open-minded. We shouldn't throw stones when we live in glass houses, right? Absolutely. I don't think people out there want to air all their skeletons in their closet because we all have them. Um, there's one part of your story that really resonated. Um, I'm not sure if I'm allowed to say her name, but we did an interview with a... She's a neuropsychiatrist or a neuropsychologist, and she explained the neuroscience of addiction. So when you were talking about, like, there was less food on the table or less food in the fridge, there was less. She she drew this, like, mental picture, and you may, <clears throat> you may see it in the film, spoiler alert. She equated somebody, somebody's brain that's in what she calls a super circuit of addiction if that person was floating in the middle of the ocean with just a life jacket, that's what it's like being in a full-blown addiction. You don't have a cell phone. You don't have supplies to build a raft. There's sharks circling. 
And all you're doing in that moment is existing. The water is salinated. You can't drink it. Like there's literally nothing you can do but exist. And I found that so powerful. And hearing that in your story really, uh, it really hits home because it's science. You're talking about somebody who is a doctor. And if that doesn't tell you that addiction is not a choice and that it's a medical condition, I don't know how else to get that through to people. That is an absolute phenomenal way to explain it with in being in the water with no supplies and not knowing what to do or where to go. You're basically accepting your fate that you're going to die out there. And I didn't know anything about the neuroscience of addiction until I got into recovery. And I'm very grateful to know that it has been scientifically and medically proven that it's a disease that helps me to accept it more and to be more compassionate with other people. And I think though people still have their ideas, right? It's a choice you choose. And essentially it's true. I chose to put drugs into my body, but I didn't stop and think that they may ruin my life. And once I was using, I didn't choose to continue because I wanted to. I couldn't function without drugs. I couldn't think I couldn't physically function without drugs. And that was scary. So uh, the way she explained it there is absolutely perfect because that can paint a picture in your mind. And yes, scientists and doctors and psychologists have done so much research and have explained things so people like me who are addicts and other people who aren't addicts can understand it. It's, it's a medical condition and if I had the choice in kindergarten to choose if I wanted to be a drug addict or not, probably would have said no. But it gets better. She goes on to talk about you floating in the ocean with a life jacket. And if somebody came in a boat with your kids, a rope and a million dollars in one hand, and in the other hand, there was a crack pipe and some crack, which one would you have picked? I'm not sure honestly, and you think it would be a quick decision. I don't know. Right. I know now what I would choose, but then the reality is, I don't know. And I may choose that crack pipe and drugs. It just goes to show you how powerful addiction is, right? It's, it's so powerful. And it's the not knowing, right? For me, inactive addiction, I, I didn't even know I was an addict. I didn't know about the medical or the the science part of it. I just knew that, yeah, drugs weren't good for me, but why can't I stop? I, I want to and I can't. That's scary. And then I just convinced myself, no, you just, you're just lazy. You just, you want to keep going because why? I didn't even like it towards the end. But yeah, addiction is the most powerful thing I have ever experienced. And and I mean, she's been she's been a psychologist or a psychiatrist, sorry, uh, person that I won't name on the podcast for legal reasons. The best thing she said that stuck with me the most is that everybody has a story and it's usually a really sad one. Yeah. Yeah. Any addict that you talk to, whether we're clean or in active addiction, the stories are powerful for sure and they are sad they are sad so i also found it kind of i find it interesting 
I don't know if interesting is the right word or the word I want to use. I might come back and cut that out. You know, you know, as as uh, as as our one of our mutual friends would say, uh, as a normie or as as a civilian, um, I do find it interesting that people find I hate using the term rock bottom or their hook or whatever it is to get them sober. If you ask a hundred people, you're going to get ninety eight different answers. But I'm seeing a lot of commonality at the root of addiction. Um, we talked to another gentleman who essentially said his trauma wasn't serious at first. It was him wanting to fit in, him being insecure, him feeling like he wasn't liked by other people, which kind of started his his unfortunate journey into addiction then you start throwing trauma on top of trauma on top of trauma on top of trauma with no coping mechanisms. And I'm finding a lot of the causes, um, uh, the root causes of people's stories and addiction are very similar. Yeah, absolutely. I've experienced that with the people like in my close circles and the people I work with. A lot of the stories I hear, like, like you said, normies or civilians, they almost wouldn't believe it. And until you've lived through some of the trauma that I've lived through and many other people have lived through, you won't know what that's like. But like you said, feeling like unlovable or no self-worth, no self-confidence, there's a lot of vulnerability there. And if you don't have those supports in play, when trauma comes up, yeah, some people can get through it because they have an army to help them. Some people are experiencing trauma with the people that are supposed to be protecting them. So where do you turn, especially as a child, a teenager, even an adult? But there is definitely a lot of commonality I've heard over the years since I've been in recovery. And I hear so many stories that the details might be different from mine, like the actual things that we've experienced, but the root causes are very similar. Absolutely. I mean, we're we're not quite done yet, but thank you for coming on and sharing. I'm sure, well, if anyone is actually listening, um, that that they could take solace in the fact that their story is similar to yours. It's similar to the other gentlemen's, and they may feel like they're alone at this time, this time at this moment, but but they're not. They've there there are people out there who have experienced what they're going through. Absolutely. And throughout my whole life, like even before active addiction and in it, like I have done some really bad things to people. I have. And there was things that when I came into recovery, I was not going to share with anyone. And eventually, you know, I would hear someone share something about themselves. They'd have that courage to be open. And I'm like, oh my goodness, I've done that too. Or what they did was worse than me. And I felt a lot less alone. And I eventually have found some close people in recovery that I can open up about those really bad things that I did or the really bad things that happened to me. Because it's hard to, you know, not just admit, but to accept. Some really, I've went through some really messed up things and feeling like, you know, no one will get it or no one will care. Or I'll be judged more. But really, with the people I've met, you know, they embrace that with open arms because that's not who I am today. And what has happened to me does not define me at all. 
I, I think that's true of most people in addiction or not, that your past generally shapes who you are as a person today, good or bad. I mean, I I don't think as human beings we're born innately bad people. It's the things that happen to us over the course of our lives that dictate whether we're a good guy or a bad guy. I don't think people can see me using air quotes if they're listening to this. <laughs> um, but it's it's how you change as a person and who you are now that's important, not who you were 10 years ago, five years ago, 10 minutes ago, you know? Absolutely. Who I am today is not who I was yesterday. It's not who I was five years ago. And I was grateful enough that I could accept, yes, I had a lot of work to be done on me. And I still have some guilt and some shame um, in areas of my life for the things that I've done wrong. But I have been learning to forgive myself. And that doesn't mean that what I did was okay. But it means that I can make peace that it happened and do everything in my power to make sure it doesn't happen again. And I learned from that. So yes, I know people who have an extremely colorful past and they're not those people they are. They're almost complete opposites. And I think that's what we need to realize is that life is a journey. You're not just one way forever and things happen and we make bad mistakes and people hurt us. But if we can get through that and move forward and see other people like that too. Some of the the best people I've met that helped me in recovery, there's no way I would have made friends with them when they were doing the things they were doing. But now they help save my life and I go to them with my problems. So if people are going to be stuck on people's past, then you can live there in the past too because that's not where we are anymore. That's um, that's interesting too. And I mean, it's great that you you have that network of people to support you. Do you think over the past five years, things, uh, maybe specifically in Thunder Bay, things in your life have changed where um, the community as a whole has been more accepting? Or do you think stigma has been getting worse in in the city and in, in, in general? So that's a pretty big question. Um, before coming into recovery, I didn't know much about stigma. I know like I would see people judging someone who is drinking on the side of the road. Um, but it's interesting because even as like a child, like young child um, and a teenager, if, if there was someone on the road like drinking or someone asking for change, I always thought, where did they come from? Like, who are they? And like, I was really interested to know who they were as a person. But I would hear people say like, oh, get a job. And when I would hear that, I'm thinking, well, they most likely don't have stable housing or like shower facilities. They probably don't have reading or writing skills. You want to go get a job? Like that was my mentality as a teenager. Um, but since I've, I've been in recovery for almost four years, I know there's a lot of campaigns and there's a lot of awareness um, events that go on to end the stigma. And sadly, I mean, there has been a, an astronomical number of people who have passed away from overdose and drug-related deaths. And I think that helps open the eyes of other people because some of these people who have died come from families that you would never expect that they were using drugs. So now you hear that and you're like, oh, so-and-so's child passed away. Wow. And then it, people kind of view that differently, right? It's like I said, it's not just the person in the back alley. 
getting high and drinking. It's people that you wouldn't expect. So I think that helps to end the stigma and spread more awareness. Um, it's sad that it would have to come to that because everyone is human um, and everyone deserves kindness, I think. But um, I see a lot in the last couple of years, bigger events, more awareness, a lot of social media campaigns. Um, and some agencies are now having like peer support workers in their establishments where they didn't have that before. Um, but it, there still is there still is stigma. And I, I don't think it'll ever go away. But I think we need to focus on like the strengths of ending it. And I've seen lots of people who aren't even affected um, personally or through their family by addiction. They come out and support. I think that's great. Like we need that. I, I agree. Um, I'm going to just kind of shift gears a little bit. Something you said at the start of that about seeing people in the street asking for change and and that kind of stuff. Um, while filming this movie at the start, uh, we were talking to somebody who was barely in recovery and their interviewing, their, sorry, their interview triggered them and they went and used. And I thought, holy fuck, we could have killed somebody by trying to do something good. That hit me hard. We had to take a little bit of time off from filming after that. When I'm going to give, we'll, we'll have maybe three perspectives on this. When you see somebody on a street corner asking for change, or you can see somebody in distress asking for money, what do you do? I'll give you my answer first because they're going to be vastly different. Me three years ago before I started working on the film and, and hanging out with, with different people that, that have gone through some real shit. I just would have been like, uh, nope, that's it. That's simple. Now I'd be very much inclined to buy people food or ask them how they are, but I still have a hang up about giving somebody money in case they use it and they overdose and die. I would feel guilty about that. What What are your thoughts on someone who's you've literally been on all sides of the spectrum when it comes to this? Okay, so to answer the first part, if I see someone asking for money, um, like with a sign or sign there, I'll hold up traffic until I can find change in the cup holder of my car. Um, but I feel like I've kind of always been like that. Uh, the second part of what you said I struggle with that sometimes too because the majority of the people um, that are asking for money and I, I do give to them, they most likely are trying to find a fix. And to me, obviously, I, I don't want to enable anyone's addiction, but I also want to show them that people care. And a lot of the times, depending where the individual is placed, like if they're standing on a median on a busy road, I can't just pull over or I won't just pull over and start talking to them. Um, but I do carry bottles of water in my car, like in the summer. And in the winter, I usually have a bag of like hats and mitts um, for those purposes. If I come into contact with someone, they could use that. But I, and I also give change when I have it, which I usually do. Um, but I will say to them, like, how are you? Or, 
sometimes they'll say to me like, God bless or something. And I'll say it back. Um, just really make like that eye contact. And I'll say like, I hope you have a good day. Um, that being said though, when I have friends who are, I know are using, I will not give them money. So I, I don't really know where I stand on that. Right. It's, it's not up to me to decide what someone does with something that you give them. If they use money to buy drugs, if they sell an item that you give them to do whatever with. Um, but I know what that's like. And I feel that if someone's asking for something, they need it. And it, I've bought food for people I've seen on the street and I've seen so much gratitude from that. Not always, because not everyone's grateful and that's fine. Um, but yeah, when I see individuals um, that look like they're in distress, now that it's nice out, um, I will sit with people. Um, I have no no fear of that. Um, I will sit with people if I think they can use some company and conversation and just see where that goes. Um, because I used to be in that exact situation, hoping that someone would notice me. So I do my best to, you know, be kind when I can. And if someone is actually asking for help, which is rare when I come into situations like that, um, I will give them phone numbers, addresses, agencies to go to. And if they go, then that's that's up to them. And I can only do what I can in the moment. Um, but my perspective on individuals like on the street has kind of always been the same. Like I said, I'm interested where they came from. Um, but I think that comes because I've heard a lot of people judge, you know, even at church, I'll hear people judge. I, I'm pretty sure you've probably heard people judge at any meetings or a meetings as well. Right. There's, there's judgment around us regardless of, of, of where you are. Right. Yeah. My biggest thing in recovery, whether I'm in the community or I'm in a meeting, you know, I'm there for me because it's either recovery or death. And I choose recovery, even when the work is really hard to do. Um, and sometimes it feels like the work is really hard and the payoff's not there because I work my ass off to stay clean and then shit still comes up. And I'm like, why is this happening? But that's just life. That's just normal life. But yeah, there is judgment and people will give you different perspectives. So I think when you're coming into recovery, it is so important if you choose to come into recovery that you be open-minded because there's not one way to do it. And what works for me may not work for someone else and vice versa. So it's good to be open-minded and stick around and make as many connections as you can and you'll see what works for you. I think people lose sight of the fact that the road to most things in life is never linear. It's it's not a straight line. Whether you're on a diet, you have your cheat days, or not that I condone or promote dieting by any stretch of the imagination, but if, if your goal is to eat healthier, you're going to have a cheat day. Or um, with recovery, there's relapse. With... I mean, you're learning a new sport, you're learning how to golf, you're going to have good rounds and bad rounds. It's not, there's not many things in life that are just linear, straight, point A to point B. I started this, here's my goal. Everything went as smooth as possible in a straight line. And I think as humans, we we have like this, this want for instant gratification. We just, we want to recover and we want to recover now. We want to pick up a golf club and be a professional golfer within a week. Um, we want to lose a hundred pounds in two days because we're trying, like we just have this, this need for gratification 
And I think putting it in perspective and realizing that things don't happen in a linear fashion is probably very important for somebody in recovery, right? Oh, absolutely. Because like I said, when I came in, I wanted to get clean, be clean, have a great life. Everyone accept me back and everything just be great. (laughs) That's not the case. You got to rebuild trust. And my biggest thing for me, yeah, I wanted to get to those milestones. Like I wanted to be a year clean and I wanted to have a job and have all these things. But really, I had to take a look at what got me into recovery. I was basically dead. I was dead on the inside and pretty close to physically dead. So if it takes months or years to establish that life that I dream for, that's fine because I spent the majority of my life depressed and alone and sad and then an active addiction. So I can spare the time that is necessary to rebuild that life that I envision. And there's no, it's not a race and it is definitely a process. And someone once told me that life is going to be up and down because when it's linear, you're flatlining and that's not good. So ups and downs are necessary because we are human. I love that. I, I may I may borrow that at some at some point. And it's kind of what you're saying too is it's a real tip of the iceberg thing, right? You oh yes. We've talked about yeah, this. You don't see the whole you you don't see the whole picture unless someone's willing to share it with you, right? Absolutely. And I think that is so beautiful. You were telling me about that a couple weeks ago, I think. We only know what we see in someone's life. We don't see their life story. And even if we've known that person, you, you don't see what's in their heart and in their mind and the things that they don't share. And that is one of the reasons that I recover out loud. I recover loudly. I don't have any shame about being in recovery because like I said, the other option is death. And recovery saved my life, which in turn gives me my parents back. I'm in my children's lives. My siblings are in my life. Like it's just, it's all encompassing. And some people I know do get uncomfortable um, when I recover out loud. They'll say, well, why, why do you have to share with everyone you're in recovery? Because the only way I got clean was other people sharing their recovery with me. And I suffered in silence my entire life. And I'm loud for myself. And I am loud for the person who thinks they're alone. What was the most important part of of your recovery? Do do folks in recovery use rock bottom? Is that a thing, or is um, there a different term that you I prefer? have heard that your rock bottom is when you start digging, or when you, sorry, rock bottom is when you stop digging, because I could hit seven more rock bottoms if I wanted to. Like there was an event for me, yes, a few months before I got clean. Um, my drive in the in the beginning was to get clean because I wanted to be in my kid's life. I have two phenomenal children and they didn't have a mother in their life. And if I kept going the way I was going, they were never going to have a mother. So that for me was like, get your head out of your ass. You're a mom. Get your shit together. And then it was like, okay. Um, but still not knowing where to go, where to turn. And eventually, you know, I got into it and I, I stayed in recovery. Um, one, the, the most beautiful thing for me, other than having my kids in my life, is that I got to discover who I am. Because before recovery, 
I didn't really know what I was good at or what I liked or what I had to offer. I just felt like I had superficial things to offer. And I liked what everyone else liked because I didn't know who I was. And when I got into recovery, I was afraid to find out who I was because I was thinking, what if I'm still this conniving, greedy, dishonest person? What if that is me? Turns out it's not. Those were just versions of me. Um, I've heard it said in recovery, we will love you until you learn to love yourself, which in the beginning, I'm like, you guys don't even know me. I don't know you. I don't want you to love me, but that's what I needed. I needed that genuine love. These people wanted nothing from me, which is good because I had nothing to offer. All they wanted was for me to do the work to get clean and stay clean and have a good life, not white knuckle it, like brand new life. Um, But the most important thing I learned in recovery is that I have to do the work. Nobody is going to do it for me. No one is going to force me to do it or threaten me if I don't do it. It's up to me. If I want it, and I did, I will do the work and continue to do the work. And I am. And I have a big network of people, of addicts in recovery, um, that show me the way. They show me the suggestions. They show me what worked for them. And over time, I realized what worked for me and what didn't. But I have to do that work. And if I don't, I'm only hurting myself. And the payoff to that is life. I get to live as a decent person. I don't think there's a better way we can end the episode with with those words uh, about choosing life. And I can't even say anything to that. So I'm just going to... I'm going to cut back and and thank you very much for coming on our podcast and sharing your story. Um, Vulnerability is never an easy thing for anybody. Uh, I I really do appreciate you and, and you being on here and sharing with us. Absolutely. It's my pleasure. Thank you for having me. Imagine a community that promotes a safe and supportive environment to talk about addictions and recovery. Join us on September 6th for our 10th annual Rockin' Recovery at Prince Arthur's Landing in Thunder Bay. Sponsors of our All Ages event will receive media coverage and brand recognition. This year, we're asking you to be a part of the recovery movement.